If someone came to you and said that they had found a way to predict the future with more than 50% accuracy, would you believe them? Would you be intrigued to learn more? What would it take for you to be convinced that this could indeed be done? Big questions in a world of big data, but in reality, the answer should be, tell me more. Since just because no other investment firm has claimed victory when it comes to predictive power using machine intelligence to successfully trade the financial markets, we can't really exclude the possibility of it having been done by a team of scientists in Ontario, Canada. And that's what we're talking about in today's episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. And that's, I think, is quite valid and quite interesting. If you were to mention a couple of names, uh, you know, people like QIM, uh, you know, the Medallion Fund, Jim Simon's uh, Fund, are, are those the kind of people you would look at? Yes, for sure. So QIM is is a great example because they are still telling their story to the world. They haven't just closed down. They don't need to talk about it. So when QIM's about it, Um, they do certainly sound like they're in the same category. Jeff Ray Woodruff, the principal of that firm, is a self-studied computer science data guy, and he's obviously done very, very well. He also hired at one point, he spoke with uh, Jack Schwager about hiring John Elder. Mm -hmm. And John Elder, uh, Jeff Ray wrote the preface to John Elder's book. So my uh, science team is very aware of John and the models that he's built and the ensemble models that he wrote about. And so we're familiar with that. And that is a firm that is quite reasonably reasonable to talk about when you talk about what we're doing. Sure. Um, they manage a lot more money than we do. So <laughs> we have to give them credit for that. Sure. And then uh, on the Renaissance front, you know, it's obviously very difficult to figure out what they're doing. I think it's really cool to think about Mercer and Brown who have taken over the firm and where they came from. So back in 1992, Mercer and Brown wrote a paper on language translation and it was quite heretical. It was quite a uh, kerfuffle in that business, in that academic space because they took the stance of not having any syntax knowledge not and no knowledge about two languages french and english and it's really close to home because the data set they fed their computer was the hansford 
texts from the Canadian legislature. As you may know, we have two official languages in our country, oh, French and English. So yeah. we have these reams and reams of legislar, legislature notes that are in both French and English. So Mercer and Brown took those, they poured it into the computer and they said, you tell us what these words mean in English or you tell us what these words mean in French and we're not going to tell the computer anything about the languages. Mm. And they absolutely crushed previous language translation accuracy. Mm. So if you look at that, now the, the one thing that is different though is that's not time series financial data. If le is the, then le is always the. So, mm. so I don't know whether if I was able to sit down with Mercer and Brown, I don't know whether we, we would be as akin as, as I hope we would be, mm. uh, but certainly a very interesting firm and they've always stayed away from the Wall Street folks by hiring physicists and cosmologists and all those things. So that's something we emulate as well. Sure, sure. Um, I'm curious about one thing before we moved on, or we move on to the trading program itself, and you can explain how it works. And I don't know, I'm not sure exactly how to to phrase the question, but if you think back of the, you know at the time where um, you know your the feedback coming back to you was you know it can't be done. And then suddenly, you know, Eureka in, two, in, in 2012, it can be done. What do you think it was that, that you discovered that allowed you to do this? And, and obviously, we're not asking for any proprietary details, but is there some kind of concept you can visualize to say this, this, is, this is why we were able to do it? Because it's such a big, it's such a big step, it seems, that you've, you've accomplished here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that most great innovations have a massive dose of serendipity. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're any different. So um, Dr. Gary Lee is a unique human being. And he was just not letting this go. And he will tell you that one night he had a dream and he as he often does he keeps a notebook by his bed and he woke up and he he made some notes and that was one of the insights that allowed him to make progress and i think the things that that really frustrated him became his focus areas so the concept that correlations change over time really informed the way he was going to look at the modeling. The second thing is that this idea that if a pattern was obvious, it was not going to be re repeating itself. I think that was a big sort of philosophical part of his discovery. But beyond that, I think, um, you know, we've often talked about why one of the questions we got met with early on before the longer track record. Now I say longer sure. because it's only a year in the partners fund that's out in the world. Then people say, well, you're just a year long. Mm. We would say, well, a year might be, you know, 48 trades to a trend follower or somebody else, but we've done 2,700. So right. I think 2,700 may be a lifetime for most managers. <laughs> but anyway, sure. um, before we had a long track record, people would say to us, uh, so you've done something that huge firms with legions of PhDs mm. have been unable to do. It's, they're sort of incredulous. And I don't know how to fully respond to that. I sure. would say one thing, though. 
if this project were being incubated at a major Wall Street firm, mm. it certainly would not have been given five years sure. <laughs> to come to fruition. Sure. And there may not have been the level of collaboration uh, supported that is necessary for this kind of breakthrough. Mm. So that's not directly responsive to your question. No, but no, but that's, that's all I got. Sure, that's fair <laughs> enough. Let's uh, let's move on to the heart of the strategy, namely the program or crystal itself. Um, when you go out and you talk to potential investors, how do you explain crystal? We explain it by trying to be. First of all, we, we declare that it's in many ways not explainable. And right. by that, I want to be very careful the way I say that. People say, are you a black box? And we say, well, it's very difficult to answer that question. If you mean we are 100% reliant on our model to make a trade, then you're right. right. If you mean... We have no idea why a trade gets made. Well, now I need to be more particular with you. So let me just take you through this. So at 8 o'clock in the morning, because we've already used this example, sure. we trade the S&P 500 and the two other equity indices we trade. Mm -hmm. It may be helpful to talk about what's going on at that moment. Sure. What's going on at that moment is the predictor in terms of input data has... The last three sessions of the S&P 500, mm -hmm. and it has the last three sessions in terms of price movement of 49 other independent variables. Okay. And it looks across all those variables, and it's asking a question. Have I ever seen this before? Mm -hmm. It then turns around to the historical data set and goes backwards through all that what we call mathematical space, back to 1996. Mm -hmm. And it looks for subspaces where those relationships have shown themselves before. Mm -hmm. And if it finds a significant number of them, it says, okay, what happens next? Mm -hmm. And if what happens next is the S&P 500 goes up, then we go long. So that's the process that's happening twice a day in every asset. And that goes part of the way to explaining to somebody what we do and, and how we do it. Sure. But let me just finish the thought about black box because right. it means that when we go long the S&P 500, we can tell you with great specificity if we tear back the model findings, we can tell you how many times we found those subspaces where this event occurred and, and why we think it's statistically significant. So we can tell you any day why we're going long the S&P 500. But we can't tell you about the causality underneath that. We can't sure. tell you why oil, gold, and the 10-year note doing this seems to have this effect on the S&P 500. I, I just I can't do that. I know if you turn on CNN, somebody's going to prefer uh, <laughs> some answer to why those things are happening. Sure. But we declare sort of agnosticity there. We, just, we have no idea what the underlying causality is, but we can tell you why, that, why we think the pattern is significant. It makes a calculation, you say, where it goes back many years looking for these patterns. I mean, th with all these variables, uh, I'm imagining that it takes quite a lot of computer power to do that. But I'm more interested in how long time does it take for Crystal to look at all this data and come up with an answer about what to do now? 
Well, that's that's a very interesting part of the story I left out. It used to take six weeks yeah. to run that. Yeah. It now takes less than a minute. Wow. It takes about 40 seconds. And if you think about the size of mathematical space, let me try to do this some justice, mm. but I, I may confuse things here. So those 50 variables, those 49 independent variables and the one target, they're not just one variable, of course. There are many, many variables over time. And if you think about a regression analysis, let's say, and you have an X and Y axis, you have a line. If you add a third variable, Z, you've gone from a line to a cube. So you've just multiplied mathematical space enormously. Well, what if you go to 50? I, I, one can't even imagine the size of that space. And what if all those 50 variables were a thousand discrete variables, each depending on how they're acting at that time? So uh, we like to say that the mathematical space is so big, it's like searching the size of the internet every time we make a prediction. Right. And then what we're finding amongst that enormous space are these subspaces of relevance, pockets of time when these relationships exist. So you're actually, when you do it algorithmically, you have to have a very, very efficient way of searching an enormous amount of space and coming back with an answer. Do you have to use cloud computing to do all of this calculation, or is that something you can actually do, you know, in your own office, so to speak? We, we do it in our own office. So the computational power is just enormous mm. these days. We don't have any particularly fancy boxes. The boxes we have have some number of cores and anybody can buy them with a reasonable budget actually. Mm. So that's not where the uniqueness comes from. The uh, this sort of route to going from six weeks to 40 <laughs> seconds, yeah. um, there's a lot of people helping with that. One of the presenters at the Battle of the Quants was a guy from Intel. Mm. And uh, Intel is doing a lot of work on I don't know if I can say this word, parallelization, parallel, yeah, whatever that word is. Sure. So it's the computations happening at the same time as opposed to serially. Right. And that's the way we used to do it was serially, and that's why it took so long. But as soon as you parallelize and as soon as you take advantage of what, quite frankly, so many people, that, that's one of the areas of big data that's helping us. You, these, these breakthroughs are never made in single disciplines. You have to have a bunch of things coming together. Mm. So storage and access and expense of data has to come down to where it's come and computational power has to increase. I think Moore's law is still happening. So mm. even if you look back at five years ago when we started this project, if if um, computational power is doubling every 18 months or so, then we've had a few doubles since we started this project. Sure, sure. If I'm um, summarizing correctly, you trade 12 different markets and you have, did you say 49 independent targets that you check every time, uh, of which I believe, you know, 11 of them, of them are the other markets that, that, uh, that you're trading. Um, can you give examples of what, other targets sort of the non uh, market targets are just just for me really to visualize what what crystal is 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 doing in the 40 seconds yes absolutely so we have a broad representation of the financial markets in that list of independent variables mm -hmm. so you can imagine i mean you put some currencies in there you put some single stocks in there some ETFs, some indices, just, just a smattering of products, 
all of which have data back to 1996. And what we have found is that pouring more independent variables in doesn't help. Right. Once you have a broad representation of what's happening, you're, we're able to pick up these subtle patterns. Okay. And the 12 markets you trade today, do they represent both financial markets and commodity markets? Yes. So we trade the S&P, the Dow, and the NASDAQ, okay. the 10-year note, mm-hmm. gold, copper, silver, okay. three soys, corn, and oil. Okay. So quite a diverse portfolio, actually. Yeah. Once again, I mean, when Gary asked me originally, what the real question was, we want to validate this technology. How do we do it? Mm. And the answer was, let's do a thousand trades or thousands of trades and let's do it across as many sectors as are reasonably accessible. Do you get 54% pretty much on, on all these different markets? Regard, I mean, despite the fact that they are quite different. Yeah, very, very close. There's no, in the, over a, a large sample size, there's no really dramatic outliers. Mm. I think our lowest is 47% uh, in terms of what we call the coin toss ratio. That's the combination of both win loss and um, win multiplier. And the highest is 64%. But again, that's live trading over a you know, reasonably sure. short period of time. But sure. it's it's amazing how how that tightens up just the more trades you have, the more tight the dispersion is between the coin toss ratio of all assets. Sure. You mentioned earlier on that your average trade length, I think you said something around 30 hours or so, but you also talk about doing the sampling twice a day, which obviously is less than 30 hours. Um, can you explain a little bit about how that works from when Crystal gets a... A, a result from all the voting going on and, and it, it decides to do whatever it decides to do, what happens next with this uh, decision? Right. So the, the two things that are happening uh, twice a day are a prediction. So we will always make a prediction. It's just that a prediction may not result in a trade. Mm-hmm. So if we make a prediction at 8 in the morning and the S&P is predicted to go up, we don't touch that trade until 2 in the afternoon. Right. We don't have a, a uh, profit stop, uh, stop loss, nothing. We have a timed new prediction. Right. If the new prediction is consistent, i.e. the S&P is going up again, mm-hmm. then we just remain in the trade. Mm-hmm. If the new prediction is the other direction, then we short two units in order to get short one unit. Sure. And if the new prediction is not sure, then we flatten the position. So you can imagine if... If you're always going to have, by definition, more predictions than you're going to have trades. Mm. Absolutely. Very interesting indeed. Let's uh, jump to a related uh, topic, which is sort of the risk management. You, you mentioned a little bit about it just now in terms of, you know, you take on the trade and, and you don't touch it. Uh, so, so clearly you're, you know, relying on, on, on signals to change in order to change your position. But... Tell me a little bit about how you how you look at risk and and how you sort of define the the, the risk framework that you let Crystal operate uh, inside. Right. So our definition of risk is the best way to manage risk is to spend less money. Mm-hmm. Our average margin to equity is fifteen percent, which means we're eighty five percent in cash on average. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that in our view, is the best way to quote-unquote manage risk. Manage risk to us, us means you've got this wonderful technology. You, you know or you're convinced that over time you're going to get this accuracy result of 54%. So going back to the roulette table metaphor, the only way you can really mess this up is to bet too much right. or allow a customer to bet too much. It's the same thing. Sure. So if a customer was able to come in and put a million dollars on red, he could put you out of business. Mm. So that's what we're managing. We're managing the bet size. And mm. we have found that's the way to keep the real key metrics most positive. So we like the Sortino ratio. Obviously, we're looking at downside risk per unit of return. What we have found is anytime we try to use other kinds of trade management, trade management that is something beyond just spending less money, we take risk return attributes out of the result. So the Sortino goes down, the Sharp goes down, the things people care about when they watch a portfolio every day get less attractive if we try to build in some of those more uh, normal uh, risk management um, characteristics. Mm. Mm. But, you know, I mean, we run, into, we, we run into a messaging problem around that because people will say to us, well, it's going to be very hard for us to sell something or to give it to our clients that doesn't have some language in it that they're normally comfortable with. And so it's, it's a challenge. We, we want to remain pure in terms of what we believe, which is we're delivering the best unit of return per unit of downside risk. And yet we want to characterize it in a way that helps people sell it. If someone came to you and asked, so what should I expect in terms of volatility? Let's just measure it as standard deviation on an annual basis. Um, and then sort of my next line of, of, of questions, which is a little bit about drawdown. What, from all you've seen in terms of Crystal's ability, what kind of volatility do you expect it to produce and, and what kind of drawdowns would you expect from Crystal? So we um, consistent relationship among those things. Mm-hmm. Given that we feel we can deliver this 54%, the question for each client becomes, what do they want to spend in terms of drawdown? Or what do they want to spend in terms of standard deviation? And what do they want to achieve in terms of return? So the relationship we have found is that there's 1% of standard deviation, annual standard deviation, per 1% max drawdown per 2% net annual returns. It's a one, one, two relationship, which if you sort of, uh, if we can continue to deliver that, it's been slightly better than that in live trading. Our, our, uh, net return at the end of the first year is 30% and the max drawdown on a monthly basis is only five, but peak to trough, it's nine. So the nine to 30, that's more than we are promising, but we expect it will it will level out to a one-one-two scenario going forward. And so, with that, just to 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 clarify, so the one-one-two means a fifteen percent annual standard deviation should produce a thirty percent return with a fifteen percent max drawdown. Yes. 
which is of course you know if you can deliver that uh, you probably won't find a shortage of investors who <laughs> wants to uh, who wants to part their money uh, you know to or send them to ontario that's for sure um, the question the question is when <laughs> when, when are they going to believe <laughs> yes that's that that is true that is true um now in 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 one sense you're obviously extremely um experienced um and on the other sense, you could say that you're still relatively new into to this uh, in terms of managing uh, the money real time and so on and so forth. So I, what I tend to do at this stage is I, I tend to try and, and ask the managers that I've spoken to who may have been around for 20, 30 years and, and, and you know, how they deal with drawdowns. The problem with you is that you haven't really had any drawdowns and, and even the drawdown you've had is not really severe so have you have you thought about this because i asked it because my last conversation last my last guest actually they're a little bit similar situation like you you know relatively new um got a very interesting strategy um they had been trading their own money for a while and they actually found that taking on client assets in particular in the drawdown periods put a, a, an unexpected pressure on them. And, and I'm just thinking here, because you're dealing with a model, you're dealing with Crystal, and uh, you're not entirely sure what Crystal will do other than it should produce a 54% uh, accuracy. Um, but have you thought about how you will deal with drawdowns? Because we can almost be sure that they will come um, because that's part of your statistical set. You know they're going to come. Have you thought about that? And in particular, if it, if, if it starts becoming a little bit more than what you expect. Yes. So that's a great area to talk about. And you can have lots of plans for sure. it, but until you're sharing your experience with a drawdown, it's, it's uh, something uh, apart, I think. So... Um, there's a couple of things that we are getting ready for. So mm -hmm. first of all, we agree with you. They're coming. Those drawdowns are coming. This sure. is not a business for the faint of heart. That's why the spoils are so big. Right. And so we're sort of going to earn our keep during those times. Mm. And one of the things we're going to do is we watch very carefully a comparison to the statistical record of the out-of-sample test and of the trading thus far. If we see something in live markets that is aberrant, that is not, that we cannot find in the out long out-of-sample test and in the live trading to date, mm. then we will flag that and say that's an indication that something has changed. Let me give you a more specific example. Sure. sure. There is no, in no, um, occurrence of three months of negative returns mm -hmm. in our out-of-sample test. If that occurs, we will reassess. So that's an example where if we find something that's occurring in live trading that has never occurred before, then we need to reassess what's going on. We either, either need to explain it mm -hmm. or turn it off. And that's something that's probably not been done in our industry. It's almost like having a service level agreement. So mm -hmm. if you think about it, we could have a service level agreement with a client that says, look, if any one of these things happens, sure. we, will, we will phone you. Right. We can track, as another example, we can track the 54%. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and we can do a rolling average of predictive power. Sure. And if that rolling average of predictive power was to fall below a previous level, a previous minimum, then that's something we should tell our clients. So I mean, we're trying to do things a little bit differently, and and uh, nobody's taken us up on that yet. But I think I think they probably will. Yeah, I mean it's 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 really interesting to me what you're saying here. I mean I think in in, in some ways it it makes it makes perfect sense what you're saying that okay if if we haven't seen this before we we call our clients or we switch it off. But but I want to bring something maybe to 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 your to you to think about, and that is over the last. Decades, uh, you and and I and many others have watched trend followers, the, the classical trend followers, and we've also watched them struggle in the last few years uh, with drawdowns that became bigger than usual, longer than usual. But what is really striking is that as you and I speak, you know, on November thirtieth, two thousand and fourteen. Many of these great firms, in my opinion, are hitting all-time highs. They are putting back some extraordinarily strong numbers for 2014. And to me, it actually makes what you just said really difficult because they did not see the longevity of the recent drawdown. Many of them did not see anything like this in terms of depth But still, the models have adapted, and when the market environment was ripe, they've been coming roaring back, and the worst thing you could have done at the time of the valley in this drawdown was to do anything other than keep trading. So I think it puts a big responsibility on the managers, and and in a sense, you as well, to... um, you know, to to have an opinion about these things and say, okay, but even if we get four months of drawdowns, we may not have seen this before, but it might not be a problem. So it's that balance between um, picking up something unusual and then deciding to do anything or not to do anything. And clearly the classical trend follows, you know, take the approach saying, well, actually, we're not trying to predict anything. So why should we try and predict exactly what kind of drawdown and exactly how long it's going to be? But we know in the long run, these things work. So we keep trading as long as nothing is fundamentally wrong. And and again, we've, you know, we've written uh, or the, the, the death of trend following has been written so many times. Yet again, it's just proven that that's a little bit too early to write it off. Did you know what I, I mean? I know what you mean, and it's well said, and shockingly, I'm going to tell you we're saying the same thing. Right. <laughs> and the reason I'm going to say that is this, the big distinction between us and the great trend followers you're talking about. So I admire those trend followers. I admire them even more when their death is prognosticated and it was premature. And yeah. so staying with it during those times, absolutely, that's the right thing for a trend follower to do. The reason we have a different decision to make is because we're looking at a experience of thousands and thousands of trades. Mm. If our out-of-sample test is 10,000 trades and our live test is 2,700 trades and something changes amongst that data set, Mm. we have an obligation that a trend follower I don't think has. Mm. If you were able to go back (laughs) 13,700 trades in a trend following system and your prehistoric 
in order to do that. Sure. You might say the same thing as we're saying. So I love the question. I think you're absolutely right about the great trend followers and, and anybody who says it's not working. I mean, it's been working for 30 years. So you ought to stay with it during those drawdowns. Uh, I think our drawdown metrics have a different statistical uh, substance to them, and we have the obligation to treat that statistical substance differently. Sure. Well put. Um, speaking of risk, speaking of drawdowns, just just a sort of a general question: Is there anything that keeps you awake at night when it comes to risk? Something where you feel if that happened, I would be a little bit worried about Crystal. And I have to say, this word "crystal" and, and your name—it's great, but it keeps reminding me about this series, Dallas, with Bobby and Jr. Wasn't she called Crystal? I think. The, uh... <laughs> I don't know. I was okay. too young. You were too young. <laughs> well, maybe I'm talking about the first version of Dallas, and not the second. <laughs> um, Anyways, back to the real question: Is there anything, yeah, there is anything there that anything? keeps you awake that you you know yeah. you think Crystal might not be able to to handle so well? Yeah. Um, I mean, what what is on my mind these days are business execution uh, right. issues as opposed to technology issues. Um, I'm excited to see what what the technology will do during times that we think are, um, uh, you know, several standard deviations, if there is such a thing. Mm. So we have looked back at some anomalous times. And once again, I have to declare that there's not a statistical significance to this narrative I'm about to give you. Okay. But for example, during the Boston bombing, right. gold went down $60 and all of the mayhem of that week, we actually made 5% that week. Mm. We didn't make money in gold. We actually lost a little bit of money in gold. Uh, we looked at the flash crash. We looked at uh, many days during 08 and 09. Mm. So it's it certainly cannot be the case. You can never say in this business sure. that that I'm worried of nothing. Uh, I I suppose I'm as worried as I am excited about the next really crazy event. Mm. And... Um, I mean, oil's gone through some really interesting sure. times in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And, you know, we'll, we'll often be short oil, we'll often be long oil um, during these times. When you break it down into a, into a micro component like that, where it's two sessions a day, um, you, you get a very different result. So just picking up on that Boston bombing example, I was asked the question, what happened when gold went down 60 bucks overnight? Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, gee, is that what happened? Well, the mm. truth is it's not what happened. It went down $70 over the course of four days. And right. so there's eight trading sessions in those four days and eight different predictions from our model during those days. Mm. So um, in what gives me comfort is the fact that we're uh, agnostic as to direction. So in a, in a crazy period of time, we're going to be long some assets, short some assets, uh, and we're only going to be holding for you know, on average, uh, we're making predictions on average every 12 hours. So again, I'm not suggesting for the mo for uh, at all that there's nothing sure, sure. in terms of market behavior that won't um, have me turning on the machine saying, gee, I wonder what happened. But if I were allocating money to strategies, I would say I'm more comfortable trading a multi-asset, multi-directional short time frame strategy than I am, say, you know, building a large position in one particular asset. 
let's, uh, let's shift gear a bit and move on to another very important topic, which is research. And in a sense, you are, you know, uh, very research focused. In fact, research was uh, uh, the only thing you did for a while before you started trading. So, so that uh, is certainly a, a very uh, topical area, I guess, for, for you to talk about. But I wanted to ask you, what kind of research <laughs> are you doing today? I mean, you did the initial research to see if you could prove that it couldn't be done, but you realized it could be done. Um, so what kind of research do you do today for, for, for Crystal to uh, evolve? Right. Well, that's a great uh, area for us. And what I love to say at the beginning of discussing this is that research is nonlinear. <laughs> and by that, I mean our team can go a very long time without uh, expressing any modifications to Crystal. But isn't yeah. it also partly, sorry to interrupt here, David, mm. but, but, oh, Dave, but I mean, Crystal is learning by itself. I mean, is Crystal doing the research for you? <laughs> well, I wish I could look at my budget and declare that, but I can't. <laughs> so yes, there's evolutionary computing going on. And sure. really, I'm not so sure as it's doing research, as it's paying attention to the fact that the correlations we talked about change over time. So mm. it's finding these new correlations. So in a way, it's really not doing anything dramatically different. It's just reacting to different relationships in its data set. But right. thankfully, it's doing that on an ongoing basis so that we don't try to find one inefficiency in the market and just build a static model and let that trade until that inefficiency is gone and therefore the P&L goes away from that strategy. So uh, I can't go that far with you, sure. but uh, what research does go on? Um, one of the things that we're close to now is coming up with a second version of Crystal. Mm -hmm. And right now, uh, we've moved it along to the point where our accuracy is 53%. So it's not as good mm -hmm. as the one that's in the market today. But the interesting attribute about this model is that it is not very correlated with the model we have in the market now. So it may be that if we launch a 54 with a 53, we can have a risk return uh, result that's even better than just the 54 sure. alone. Sure. So that's the kind of thing that's uh, going on. Gary Lee is the driver of that research. And he is somebody that feels like we have not accomplished uh, well, he would say we've accomplished 10% of what we're capable over a lifetime. So that's the kind of rigor he sort of, or, or pressure he puts on himself to come up with new ideas. He's always reading. Mm. Uh, certainly deep knowledge and deep learning is something that a lot of uh, academic folks are talking about these days and how that applies to financial data, if it does at all. Certainly the folks that are working on Google Mind have some interesting ways of attacking this problem. If you think about one of the challenges of, of that technology, it's, it's very easy for a three-year-old to recognize a cat in an image. It's very difficult for a computer to recognize a cat in an image. Okay. And so Google's making some progress there. So we certainly, and, and actually the, the, some of the people that were hired to do that were out of the University of Toronto and familiar to our folks. So, you know, he's watching all the time what's happening in various pods of excellence and applying it to what we do to seeing if there's any way we can keep improving our technology. Mm. Now, I get a question from uh, our listeners very often who are very interested in, 
in me remembering to to ask this question so i'll i'll try and rephrase it to today's conversation and so so let's see how 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 i'm doing on that traditionally when you have a and again i've used sort of a standard cta strategy as as the starting point um let's say that uh you start losing money and you track it down to a specific model there's just a model that's not producing any any return in fact it's losing money and so you can identify where the problem is and then you can decide from there uh what to do about it but inside crystal <laughs> if you start losing money and the 54% generally goes down for example how do you how do you locate where the problem is because crystal is looking at all sorts of things every single time it makes a decision so how would you how would you even figure out why the 54% uh was not holding up uh, should it happen that is a great question i can tell you we faced it um not fully but we faced it in this sense uh if you look at our trading to date in what we call the KFL partners fund mm-hmm. we have a loss in the silver contract Mm-hmm. of about 11% of our total uh, profits mm-hmm. is uh, a loss in silver. There are 99 trades in that asset course of the life of the fund. Mm-hmm. So we did feel the question that was something like, well, why trade silver? <laughs> and the answer, is, <laughs> the answer is because over a very, very lengthy out-of-sample test, it proved to be profitable. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know at what point in terms of the number of trades we would ever throw out an asset, but it would go to the core. I talked earlier about the two attributes of an asset that that mean we can't trade it, and it has to do with data and it has to do with spread. And if those two things are not the problem with, for example, silver, and we can figure that out, then there's something in the core of the technology that is the problem. Mm. So, um, you know, that's an interesting conversation that sure. I hope never comes up, but I don't have an easy answer for you. Mm. Another question I think is, again, I'm trying to rephrase it in my mind as we go along because you do things differently from uh, so many of the people that I've had the pleasure and privilege to talk to. But, you know, it's the point about a backtest. You know, um, uh, sometimes I would argue that Uh, looking at a traditional CTA that's been around for 20 years, you would argue that a backtest is probably more meaningful uh, to look at if you could get a backtest of the current configuration rather than the live track record because it has changed so much. But in your case, I wonder, I mean, I wonder what, I mean, if you, if you could have a choice to look at a live track record going back five years of Crystal, or a backtest of Crystal going back 20 years, which one do you think would be more meaningful? Or would they be the same in terms of value to you looking at it? Hmm. Uh, Let me answer this two ways. First, I will tell you that Gary Lee takes 80% of his comfort in the veracity of our model and the the accuracy of our model Mm -hmm. from the mathematical proof. Mm-hmm. He takes 10% from the back test and 10% from the live record. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that might put it in context. Now, I'm not as evolved as he is. And I would answer the question this way. We have made every effort to ensure 
that our back test is what really would have happened. So when we launched in January of 2013, you can imagine it was impossible to go back over the previous five years and trade live because you can't go backwards in time. So we could only launch with the benefit of the out of sample back test. But as we've traded live, you do have the ability to do both live trading and back test trading over that period. And we've worked very hard to the point where our live trade record for the next six months, or let's look at the last six months because it's, it's accurate. So the live track record over the last six months is 99.3% the same as the back test over that same period. Mm. So that's something we track on a real-time basis. Even though we're able to trade live in a period, we backtest that same period. And our question is this, not what's the P&L, although we do have that question, we do have that measurement, but are the trades S&P you know, up November 30th, 8 a.m.? Did we go long? Mm. Did we go long in the backtest? Did we go long in the live trade? Sure. And what we have found is we've got it to the point where we have a 99.3% match rate which we're very thrilled with because that gives us some comfort to say, okay, if that's what's happening, then the five-year back test, well, we're 99.3% sure that's what would happen. Mm. I mean, you described, I think, uh, earlier on that what you're trying to do is to predict human behavior to some extent expressed through financial markets. Now, Some of the guests that I've had on, and I'm thinking here of uh, Roy Niederhofer recently and Scott Foster uh, previously, and I'm sure there's a few more of them actually. As far as I recall, one of their findings are, generally speaking, that human behavior is more predictable through stressful times. Mm. Do you see that as well in Crystal, that somehow, and I'm not sure exactly how again to phrase that question, but... um. Is it, is it more accurate uh, pre making predictions through these, you know, when markets become uh, in, in a sort of state of stress? Uh, first of all, I would agree with the um, conclusion sure. that behavior is more predictable during stressful times. Um, we also, in order to substantiate that from an evidentiary point of view, We certainly, in the out-of-sample test, made more money during what we would call stressful times right. than less stressful times. Mm. What I don't have for you, and I'm a bit ashamed to tell you because I can actually discover it, and I will as a result of this conversation, sure. uh, I could track our predictive capability through what is loosely labeled stressful periods versus non-stressful periods. Sure. We talked earlier in this conversation about the wind multiplier getting better sure. during those times, but I suspect the trade accuracy might also get better during those times, but I don't have the number no, at no, my fingertips. That's, fine. that's yeah. fine. Um What's the biggest challenge you feel that you face as a firm right now when you look at it? Uh, I think it's very clear. Um, convincing people that they ought to allocate to an emerging manager. I believe that allocations have been made by and large to great infrastructures. There was a period of time, and you're familiar with it, when small assets were not really an indicia of anything except being nimble. 
Mm-hmm. And now small asset bases carry with them the fear that there isn't a robust infrastructure and that you're not going to ultimately get what you buy. Mm-hmm. So that's, I believe, our biggest challenge is um, telling our story in a way that's differentiated, but also helping people get over the chasm of allocating to somebody that is not easily categorized and that is not currently, uh, you know, providing the comfort that comes from managing hundreds of millions of dollars. I agree on the challenge, of course. Um, have you have you made any um, progress or maybe that's not the right word, but have you come to any conclusion as to how you think you do that? I mean, hmm. hmm. Sheer, sheer force of will. Right. <laughs> no, no, I think you tell your story passionately as much as you can, and I appreciate you taking the time to help us do it through this medium. Sure. Uh, we have made progress. Uh, we have really our first account that has come through the very traditional um, due diligence process by one of the largest FCMs, and then they put in front of us a client that they have a high regard for and who has a very large asset base. So that account has been one. We will fund it this month. And so sure. hopefully, I mean, I think under the broad, broad category of assets beget assets, um, maybe we're on the way to doing that. I hope we are. But interestingly, if we, we could just spend a couple of more minutes on this because I think it's so helpful for the majority of, of managers listening to this because the majority is small relative to the minority who are very big. And what kind of pushback? I mean, when you explain this story to me and you explain the caliber of the people that you have working with you, you explain the computer power you have uh, in order to do these things, I mean... In one sense, it's pretty difficult to say that you don't have a good infrastructure, you don't have talented people. Um, so, so what kind of pushback are people actually giving you? Or is it in truth um, pushback that um, comes from a different angle but is maybe not expressed Uh, you know, in a direct form to you saying, okay, well, you have, you know, your infrastructure is not big enough, but that's not really why uh, they they might say no or say, you know, it's too early. Did you have a sense for what the real issue is? Uh, we talk about this all the time. It's so mm-hmm. fascinating to think of the psychology of these meetings. So mm-hmm. there's a few things that have come up that I think are reasonable Uh, assessments to make. One is there's a there's an asymmetry of agency. And by that I mean if you're talking to somebody who's an agent of money, mm-hmm. whether it's an agent of the family office or whether it's a employee of a large firm and that employee is tasked with doing due diligence on managers, mm-hmm. the asymmetry of saying yes or saying no is this. If they say yes to us, meaning they recommend an allocation to us or any emerging manager, then they might get fired. If they say no to us, there's no chance of them getting fired. In fact, there's more chance of them being deemed to be prudent. Mm -hmm. So guess what happens when you have an asymmetrical payoff at a very personal level? (laughs) You saw what happened in 2008 and 2009 (laughs) on the opposite side of life. 
you know, make the bet, hit your number, get mm. paid a lot, don't hit your number, you know, sure. nothing happens. So, so there's a bit of an asymmetry of agency there. So you have to be careful who you're talking to, I would say, to the managers in, in this uh, listening. Mm -hmm. And if you're talking to a decision maker, then you're talking to the right person. The decision makers front of as an emerging manager tend to be either high net worth individuals or family offices that are very close to the money. Mm. If you're somewhat disassociated with the decision maker because you're talking to a larger institution, an asset allocator or a pension fund, then just realize that you're probably, it's inappropriate to uh, conduct that interview in a way that forces somebody into a yes, no decision. So right. What, we, what I think mistake I made early on was talking passionately about this scientific breakthrough. And really what the person felt was they were being asked to say, do you believe or don't you believe? Mm. And of course, it's very prudent and very reasonable for somebody to say, oh, I'm sorry, at the end of a 45-minute meeting, I can't declare that I believe. Sure. <laughs> so, so we stopped that and we started saying, look, we're not asking you to believe or not believe. We're asking you a very simple question. Would you like to follow our story? Mm. And if they say yes to that, if they say no to that, then they're just, I think, not intellectually curious enough and it's no harm done. But if they say yes to that, then we put them on the monthly um, information mm. update and we watch how they metabolize that information. So if somebody is metabolizing that monthly information, meaning they're going in, they're opening up the emails, they're looking at, we did a series of videos that, that we're very fond of. And so if they're watching the videos and listen, and reading our material, then they are metabolizing that information. And, and at some point we earn the right to discuss with them again. And really the question at that point is not yes or no, but it's, what do you think? Mm -hmm. And so we've taken this very, um, we've changed our approach to that conversation. You know, Dave, that's a great answer. And I have never heard that explained that way, but I have to commend you for that because what you're saying, and I think this is so critical, and that is we shouldn't really market ourselves as we did 20 years ago or 25 years ago. What you're saying is we need to do it in a way where we can monitor the dialogue and we can slowly make it more and more meaningful to a point where, you know, you are able to have the conversation um, about, you know, do we fit in and, and so on and so forth. Um, I think that's really interesting. I think most managers today um, don't necessarily use that kind of technology, which is another kind of technology. I mean, you mentioned the simplest thing, which is monitor, do they open my emails? Monitor, do they actually um, pay attention to the material we, 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 we uh, give them via video or something else? I mean, that's a scientific approach to marketing, which I actually completely agree with, but I don't think many people are, you know, uh, doing it today. So I love well, that answer, actually. Well, thank you very much. It's it's born out of some uh, frustration or some reflection on the early part of our marketing and sales efforts. And mm. once again, I have to thank Myler Capital for really giving me those ideas and, and changing the pace at which we thought we would um, bring on new folks. Sure. Um, as a still emerging manager, as you say, if you could ask a question of a big manager... And uh, you know, someone who came on to my uh, podcast and uh, 
20, 30 years of experience. Is there anything that you would like to ask them? I'm just curious what, what you think you could really learn from from um, from someone who's been doing it for, uh, you know, for, for a long time. Yeah, I, I don't think there's been a meeting I've been where I, I've been in where I haven't learned something. And I hope that always continues. I think this industry attracts really great people, really intellectually curious people. I was just reading some material from Northfield. I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name, but wonderfully smart people who write about our business and who opine on our business. So uh, there would be something I can definitely learn from everybody. I think my questions today would be in the category of asset gathering. Mm -hmm. And I would just want to know what they felt they did right, what they felt they would improve on over the course of time. And uh, I think probably... I would, from a philosophical standpoint, also ask them, have they enjoyed the journey? Because uh, I'm surrounded by partners who have had big economic payoffs mm. and they assure me that it is not the destination, but right. the journey that matters. And I can tell you, we've had an enormous amount of fun and enjoyment in this journey, even though we aren't yet at the destination, meaning managing a billion dollars. Sure. Um now that's sort of the question about you know talking to another manager but when we talk about potential investors what do you think that they find the hardest to understand or get their head around when it comes to machine learning you know a strategy that is based on 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 that aspect rather than sort of the traditional Uh, research uh, historical data come up with some rules test them thoroughly and uh, you know and implement them uh, if successful what's the difficult do you think the part that that uh, investors face when they come and talk to you about machine learning i i think the first difficulty they face is the language we use right so uh when i try to figure out what I think about something, I'll write about it. So I wrote a 20-page document recently on this very issue. Sure. What is the challenge of the recipient of all this information? Yeah. And I ended up calling the document euphemisms, metaphors, and loose associations in a particle physics world. <laughs> so the a nice, is, easy-to-digest title. Yeah. Right. So the point <laughs> is this. We try to make things, sound bites for everybody. Mm. So we'll use the sound bite of big data, or we'll use it of machine learning. And right. what that person hears when we say machine learning, we have no idea. Um, so I think it's, it really uh, serves all of our purposes to help the recipient really delineate the nuances and to really categorize things quite quickly. And we started this conversation with this distinction between reacting to prices versus predicting prices. And I will bake that into all of our discussions just right up front to say there is a distinction in, in the world of people you've probably seen to date. And I want to help you with that distinction. And the, the greater job I can do of, of helping them understand where everybody fits in, the more chance we have of them, again, metabolizing a very uh, tough story to metabolize. Everybody brings their own um, experiences to the meeting. And if you think about what we're saying to people, 
is we're saying here is an innovation of enormous proportions. This is Fields Metal type stuff here. Mm. And yet we're sitting in front of you, Mr. Investor, mm. encouraging you to invest in us. And, and they're probably thinking one of two things. One, if this is, you know, it's so good, it's too good to be true. Right. And secondly, if it is that good, what are they doing talking to me? <laughs> if it is that good, surely they would have $2 billion to manage. Sure. So I think, I mean, maybe that's, a risk, maybe that's an analysis of a less sophisticated listener than the one you were thinking of, but those are the things that are on my mind. It's fine. I mean, when you do meet, and, and this is going to be my last question before we jump to the final uh, section, but just, just, just staying on that point, in these due diligence meetings, um, is there something you feel investors today um, should be focusing on more and asking you about um, compared to what they, they, they do? Is there something where they should, you know, where they should focus their attention when it comes to talking to you? Yes, I, th I feel like the best due diligence conversations we have are with the most sophisticated people and the people who have had the most um, experience with statistical modeling and backtesting and the, the pitfalls of backtesting. So right. you can tell pretty quickly when you're talking to someone whether they're experience is such that they're asking you these really crisp questions about the pitfalls of backtesting. Right. And so things like selection bias mm. and things like sampling bias and things like symmetry of live data and historical data and the challenges therein. If somebody is in that track, immediately I know the information we give them will be encouraging to them. Mm. The tougher challenge is when they haven't asked questions about the quality of the testing that has gone on at each firm they've talked to. So if those challenging due diligence questions aren't put to the various managers they're interviewing and then they allocate capital to them and then the back test doesn't turn out to be reality, they come with that experience to our meeting Mm. And we want to say, well, here's our out-of-sample test and here's our live track record. And they want to say, well, gee, I can't put any emphasis on out-of-sample tests because I've never had a back test that's worked. Right. And secondly, your track record is too short, meaning you know, they don't give any weight to the number of trades versus the number of months. Mm. Uh, so I would, to respond to your question, I would encourage them to do uh, a stronger level of due diligence on the statistical underpinnings of the of the Im information they're being shown yeah. you know let's jump to the last section which i you know i just call it general and fun so it's a little bit of everything um i mean you've clearly had to learn quite a few new terms from being a commercial litigator to now talking about statistical Uh, you know, uh, measures uh, in a very fluent way. But what about the entrepreneurial gene? Has that always been inside of you? <laughs> yes, it has. It was, uh, it's a genetic predisposition in my family. <laughs> my father was a serial entrepreneur. So I think I was masquerading and happily so as a commercial litigator because it was a very interesting Uh, time and the one thing I took away from that I think was the confidence that I could be at any meeting and contribute some 
some decent value. Um, but the entrepreneurial gene um, has has always been there, and I can tell you that I've never been more comfortable on a day-to-day basis and more fully employed than launching this business. And I suspect there's no going back. No, true. Um, you mentioned that uh, your team reads a lot of books and, and uh, you obviously done your, your share as well uh, in, in, in what you've done. But are there any books that, from your perspective, has uh, had a bigger impact on 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 you as a as a person uh, in in all of this. Uh, it could be related to you know trading, but it could also be related to other things. Just something where you felt you know by reading this book, I really learned something. Yeah, I think you make a great distinction between trading books and non-trading books. Mm. Um, I, I was recently asked by one of our partners whose son has declared that he wants to be a hedge fund manager. And so the son asked me what he should study at school. And he gave me some choices. He said, should you do a business degree and then an economics degree? Or should you do an economics degree and then a business degree? Or should you do a business degree and then an MBA? And I said, the best traders I know went to study English. And if you're going to read a book... Read Shakespeare, because nobody since has captured the frailties of human nature like he has. And if trading's about anything, it's mm. about the frailties of human nature. So that's sort of uh, uh, sort of what comes to my mind when you talk about books. Um, recently, though, I've read The Innovators by Walter Isaacson, and mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful story about innovation and mm-hmm. about how challenging innovation is even when it works you can look at the steam engine you can look at the first computer these things took decades to uh, come to fruition and be adopted and so that gives us some patience Um, and um, yeah that's that's what comes about peter teal's peter teal's new book is is quite good zero to one i think that's an interesting read certainly for anybody who wants to be in the venture space sure sure I asked you before about the entrepreneurial journey and you obviously said that that was part of your gene. I mean, as entrepreneurs, we, you know, we have our failures along the way. Um, and, uh, you know, what about you when you look back on your on your journey? Are there anything that springs to mind in terms of where you say, yeah, you know, that you know, that, that I failed at this stage, I could have done it differently or, or, um, or maybe you don't look at it uh, in, in that respect? I think it, at the deepest philosophical letter uh, level, it's n- it's not a great idea to go back and say what I would have done differently. Sure. But it's also a great idea to be open-minded about your failings. Mm. And certainly, uh, you know, the self-examined life is the one worth living. So we as a group spend a lot of time on that. What I would say about my personal journey is I waited too long. Right. <laughs> I yeah. would say that sure. I was an imposter working for the big... <laughs> law firm and the big bank and the big mutual fund company. And I really, if I was to do it all again, Mm. I would take a lot more risk a lot sooner. Mm. And what I mean by risk isn't reckless risk. It's just if you're going to get to a a result that puts you in the top, you know, Mm. quintile of anything, you can't get there by being comfortable all the time. So, 
what the risk you want to take, I mean, I sound like I'm pontificating. I don't mean to. I'm, I'm teaching myself. The risks I would take in life are the risks that, yes, have downside, but mm. the amount of upside is commensurate or even greater than the downside. So what we look for going through life are what we call pot odds. If you know, for example, that the chance of making an outside straight are, say, 8 in 42, so let's call it 1 in 6 or 1 in 5, um, and you know that you're being asked to make a bet that has a 10 to 1 payoff, well, then you should probably make that bet. Mm -hmm. it's, it's true that you could lose, but if you get your money in good each time you get the chance throughout your life, mm -hmm. then the rewards are amazing. And there's far too many people, certainly, I've seen, and I was a victim of it, who uh, were not um, you know, prepared to take that risk. Sure. You mentioned early on in our conversation you have uh, three wonderful children. If you could take just one of your own skills and pass it on to your children, which one would it be and why? <laughs> uh, is optimism a skill? <laughs> Could be. I'm not sure. Could be. I think that's what I would pass along. I think this uh, world we live in is, is quite magical. I think the great deals go to the optimists because they're prone to paying more for them. <laughs> the great experiences go to the optimists because in life you probably find what you're looking for. And the optimists tend to look for great things and expect great things. So that's what I would bequeath to my kids if I could. Mm, great answer. Just a couple of more questions, Dave. Um, is there a fun fact about yourself that you could share? Something that even people who know you reasonably well may not know about you hidden talent i don't know what it could be <laughs> well the people who know me know that i'm six foot nine right so that's kind of a fun fact sure uh but i think perhaps um the i referred to peter Thiel's book recently and apparently he asks a question in, in his interview process that i love and mm -hmm. the question is this What philosophy do you have that when you express it out loud tends to get rejected by the masses? Mm -hmm. What a great question. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that my philosophy that tends to get rejected by the masses is that human beings are very creative people, very creative entities. We create our own realities. We create our external circumstances. Mm -hmm. And we do that in probably in the quiet times as opposed to the busy times. So I know Ray Dalio at Bridgewater is a big fan of transcendental meditation, sure. uh, as am I. And yeah. I think if I trace back the great fortune I've had to meet the people on this project and mm -hmm. to achieve what we've achieved, I can actually trace it to a time when the meditation was working in my life and my own vision of my own future was changing dramatically. So I don't think those things are coincidences. Sure. Uh, but if you go out into the world and say, hey, if you think it, it will come, people mm. dismiss it. So there you go. There's my sure. revelation, character revelation to you. <laughs> Great stuff. Um, now, I talked earlier uh, about you know investors uh, possibly not asking Uh, all the questions that you would like them to ask you. So I'm going to turn the camera, so to speak, or the microphone on myself and just ask you if 
we have been covering the right questions today. Is there anything that I've missed? I want to be sure that I do you and and your firm justice. Is there anything that we've we've missed today? Uh, Niels, I don't think so. Uh, it may be, you know, we, we've taken, I haven't looked at the clock lately, but I'm sure it's a great amount of time. So I would say that you set yourself apart from the crowd by virtue of when you and I chatted at the Battle of the Quants, you weren't, you didn't have the predisposition of this can't be true. When we go around the world these days, we like to say the phrase, tell me more. Mm. So even when somebody says something audacious, instead of saying, oh, that can't be done, we tend to use the phrase, tell me more. And that's what you said at the Battle of the Quants after the panel, tell me more. Mm. So I think you've set yourself apart in terms of the way you interact with the world. And uh, the list of questions you've asked today are are wonderful for lots of different constituents. And I certainly feel we've had the chance to express our story in a very fulsome way. Great stuff. Now, before we finish completely, Dave, what's the best place for people to find out more and uh, and reach out to you? Our website's a wonderful place to go to and, and see a lot of the things we've talked about. There's some videos on there that are great. In addition, there's a place to subscribe to our monthly information. So if you just put your email in there, we can send lots of stuff to you. And that website is kflcapital.com. Fantastic. Great stuff. And of course, we will put on our webpage in the show notes. We will, of course, put links and some other great stuff um, about your firm as well. So all I've got left to say, Dave, is thank you so much. You took time out to to share your uh, your insights and your vision and your story, which I thoroughly appreciate and uh, And I hope people have learned uh, a lot about a new way of trading, which we don't come across so often. And uh, I think it's uh, it's exciting to hear about these things. And uh, you know, I wish you uh, all the best in uh, in the future with this. So thank you very much, very much, Dave. Thank you, Niels. That was wonderful. Good. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.